0: summarize uh, verses 14 through 21, where we were last time. I'll pray, and then we'll jump into our text for tonight, which Nathan, Josh, I called an audible and decided to do more verses because I felt that the, the flow of the text was more appropriately broken here, so... Luke, uh, verses 14 through 21, Luke gives an account of the first sermon of the early church where Peter shows that the pouring out of the spirit of Pentecost and the outburst of tongues was not merely a miracle or the result of too much wine, but rather it is a fulfillment of Joel 2 and Isaiah 2 as the eschatological temple of the last days is being built. Peter, along with Luke, shows that the last days have started and the magnificent and terrible day of the Lord is coming soon. Peter shows those with an earshot that they... Can be saved by the power of the Holy Spirit if they call upon the name of Yahweh or the Lord. Very good. All right, Father, I want to thank you so much for the opportunity to study your Word tonight. Lord, I pray as we deal with some um, difficult text to kind of bring together. Lord, I pray that we would uh, that we would be able to enjoy application from the text in that your word would shape us, would mold us, would craft us into people individually and collectively that are more conformed to your son's image. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. So tonight, um, as you can tell from the title on the handout there, I've, I've titled it This Jesus, which is a play off of Peter's describing of which Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth and other modifiers that Peter is going to apply to Jesus. Who is Jesus um, and what is necessary for salvation? These are the questions that we're going to start to see Peter address in tonight's sermon. What we say about who Jesus is and what is necessary to believe about Jesus for salvation is something that we have to grapple with. The cults of the world, the world religions, have their take on who Jesus is and how his person and work relates to salvation. If you're familiar at all with Jehovah's Witness thought or Mormon thought or uh, Islamic thought, all the world religions are going to have something to say about Jesus. There's usually some tie-in to the person and work of Christ. Uh, This is not limited to just the world religions. I would actually say that non-religious, atheistic people also have something to say about Jesus. They might say he's a good teacher. They might even say that he's God in some sense, but they reject that portion of the whole Christ, which is Jesus is Lord over my life. Unbelievers have something. They have to interact with Jesus once he is uh, uh, proclaimed to them. But our friends and family also have a confession about the person and work of Christ. And this is a particularly difficult one because we have a deep emotional connection to our family and friends. We want them to be true Christians. We want the people that we care about, if we really believe that Jesus is the way to heaven, we want our people to be connected to Christ too. And yet, when we're interacting with them, there, there are questions that come up where it's like, I'm not really sure that we're on the same page. Here about what you what it means to have faith in this person Jesus, and it's difficult because there has to be some sort of line drawn of where do we kind of move from? Yeah, we're on the same team. To no, we're we're really not talking about the same Jesus here whatsoever at all. And so, what we're going to work through tonight is uh, how to how to kind of draw that line in the sand. Obviously, this is not an ex- a, comprehensive statement about everything you could say about the person and work of Christ. But who you believe about the person and work of Jesus is essential to both your eternal destiny and to the eternal destiny of those that you care about and those that you interact with. And Peter is going to be walking through that with people who don't currently, at this point in the narrative, believe in Jesus. So what Peter wants them to know about the person and work of Christ is just as applicable to us today as it was to these people because Christ is still all of these same things that Peter was proclaiming him to be. Now, obviously, creeds and confessions forever, pretty much, in the Christian faith have done work to summarize who Jesus is and what he has done. Going back as, as early as we can, and obviously there's some debate about when this is, the Apostles' Creed has a nice summary for who is Jesus and what did he do. And what, I, what I've tried to do here is I'm going to say the Apostles' Creed right at the top. And then what you're going to notice is that I think Peter's sermon has somewhat of a nice flow that matches the flow of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, uh, his, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead or hell, depending on how you want, to, what you want to call that. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. <clears throat> so here, as the creeds have, this is a faithful summary of which Jesus Peter is talking about. Peter, the creed, and our outline tonight will generally follow this pattern. We're going to have something said about the life of Jesus, and we're going to have something said about this Jesus who, on a cross, died, buried, resurrected, and then finally, we won't get to it this week, but it's not just, we we normally think death on the cross, burial, but we're also going to try to nuance that picture a little bit to Jesus who died, descended, resurrected, and ascended, okay? And I think we're going to catch some of these themes in Peter here. <clears throat> so, our, our first section for tonight, the Jesus who lived, is in verse 22. Whoever has Acts 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So Peter kind of starts relatively low stakes, if we would. Everyone knows that's been living in this time. There's this Jesus dude who's been going around doing miracles, who's been doing mighty signs and wonders. You only have to think to uh, John chapter 3. When you think about John chapter 3, think John 3:16. Okay, But let's broaden that narrative a little bit. Who's Jesus interacting with in John chapter 3? He's interacting with Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to him by night, and kind of the opening to their conversation, what does he say? We know that you are from God because you're doing these signs and wonders and all these miraculous things. And and if someone's doing these things, then they have to be from God. That's kind of where this dialogue with Nicodemus starts before we get in being born from above and born again and all these other topics. But clearly, there is some recognition from the general populace that something different, something unusual, something miraculous is happening with the work of Christ and God is using these miraculous things to verify that Jesus' teachings are legitimate. That is the function of the signs among many others to say the divine stamp of approval that Jesus' proclamation of his person and what he is doing is indeed true. Now, I think it's interesting that, well, I mean, obviously, Josh just brought this up. Peter's coming right off of applying something about Yahweh to Jesus. And yet, what is really the first descriptor beyond Nazareth that we see of Jesus in this text? We see him described as a man. And both of these are true. It's not... Stated in Nicene, Trinitarian language But we are already seeing this incipient form Of Jesus is fully God And Jesus is fully man And the fact that Jesus is fully man Is critical for our salvation Not something we consider often Um, Gregory of Nazianzus Has a line that I think Really puts this quite well If anyone has put his trust in him As a man without a human mind He is really bereft of a mind And quite unworthy of salvation This line right here for that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. But that which is united to his Godhead is also saved. If only Adam half fell, if only half of Adam fell, then that which Christ assumes and saves may be half also. But if the whole of his nature fell, it must be united to the whole nature of him that was begotten, and so he saved as a whole. Jesus was man in every capacity, because as Jesus resurrects to the ideal resurrected man, then when we resurrect, we have the hope that we will be fully conformed to Christ in that way. So let's split that out a little bit. We have a body, we have a soul, we have a mind, we have a will. You can throw different terminology at that. Let's start with one of those. Our bodies are broken. Our bodies have diseases. Some of you Um, are obviously dealing with health things in your family, but some of you are also approaching 30 and starting to feel what that's gonna feel like as you continue to age. Our, Our body is not perfect. Our body's not perfect, but if we move a little deeper than that, our soul, our mind, certainly does not always have right thoughts. We do not always think rightly about God and about people, and if we move to the willing function that comes from that mind, we do not always want the right things. We don't always have a God-centered, love-toward-others toward, toward others desire. What do we want in life when we go into things like prayer group? We want our illnesses healed. We want a body that actually functions as it is designed to function. We want to stop thinking, and you know it's wrong, but you can't stop thinking in this sinful pattern, okay? We want to think about God more correctly, or... I want something really badly that I know I shouldn't want. The fact that Jesus is fully man is the only hope that we have of all the parts that were marred in the fall finally being renewed into the image of Christ. And so right here, this is an essential portion of the person and work of Jesus, that he was fully man. And because Jesus possessed these, we will be like him, in all of these ways. So that is just a quick snippet from Peter about the life that Jesus lived. He was a man attested to by God with a whole lot of crazy stuff going on. But let's look at verses 23 and 24. Whoever has 23 and 24. So Jesus really died, which that generally isn't an issue. If you go within the first couple hundred years of the church, guess what? That's an issue. If you can make it an issue, it's been an issue in church history. But Jesus really died. And Peter's kind of moving up a level here when he's talking about this because it's not just this objective kind of out there fact that Jesus died. He he moves a step further and implicates some guilt. To the audience that he's speaking to, he says, not only did Jesus die, you guys killed him, or in the context of his argument, you guys killed the Messiah. Which is quite the move up from saying that there is a guy who's done a lot of nice things around here. It's quite the step up in his argument. First, um, in understanding this, we have to see this as a classic marriage of divine sovereignty and human responsibility, the father killed Jesus. The father killed Jesus as a sacrifice for our sins in perfectly just fashion. Romans three twenty-five through twenty-six, and this is a little bit hidden in the English text. This, as the uh, hilasterion, the uh, Greek word for the cover on the atonement seat. Right there are some clear implications that the father is sacrificing Christ. For our sins. And his blood is being applied on our behalf. Romans 3.25-26. Whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood. to received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance. He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness. At the present time. So that he might be just. And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the father killed Jesus. And also. Humans kill Jesus sinfully and unlawfully. Um, Westminster Confession places this in, in such nice language here. God from all eternity did by most wise and holy counsel of his own free will, uh, of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass, yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. All God has to do is stop stopping you in a specific way. And like water, that's, you remove one barrier for water, and water is going to rush to that low point and fill it. And in, this, in a similar way, our sinful bent is going to rush down to the lowest point it possibly can. And, and God graciously provides some barriers. But when God just simply takes his hands off in this sense, he is sovereignly able to ordain and yet... The contingency of second causes, our will, is perfectly operative. We are the ones, they are the ones, who nailed Jesus to the cross. Let's press into that second bit there, that not only did Jesus live, not only did Jesus die, but then I think it's interesting that Peter takes such a moment here to implicate this crowd as guilty. So let's, let's press into that idea of human guilt here for a moment. Obviously, we want to see, and this is true from the text, that it was the people who were there who nailed Jesus to the cross. But it is also equally true that it is our sin, our actions, that caused Jesus to be nailed to that cross. And so we have to deal with our guilt as well. This is not just an abstract idea that only the people in Jesus' day were a guilty people. We have to do business with the fact that we also have a moral culpability for our sin. And each of our smallest sins is not only taken by Christ, but is why Christ went to the cross. And I would say this gently, but I would offer that some, but not all, of the anxiety and the depression and the dissatisfaction and the not feeling like you fit in with God's people is because of guilt. It's because of guilt. Some may not experience these things in a way that you would stick a label on it and say, that's anxiety, that's depression. But, on the other hand, some people in this room live with this vague sense of an unbearable internal tension That It's so frustrating because you can't really put your finger on it, and yet it threatens to tear you apart. And it's so frustrating because you can't quite wrap your mind around what's really going on in your heart. But there's this undeniable tension that that just plagues your soul from day to day. And I'll be quick to balance that truth with this, that there are some instances of relatively innocent suffering. Not every tension, not every difficulty is a result of a sin struggle. However, often our emotional, our mental, our relational, our heart issues, if you will, are a product of the heart idols that we're dealing with. Okay? And, and there is a moral culpability that is associated with worshipping something else besides the one true God. And so my encouragement to you guys here tonight is to do business with your guilt. You have to come to grips with your guiltiness. And as we move through this text, Peter's going to take a people. He's going to proclaim, you are guilty. If you jump over past verse 36, they're going to respond to that guilt and say, you're right. I am guilty. Now, what do I do about it? We have to do business with our guilt. We will do literally anything to not have to come to terms with our guilt. We will numb ourselves. We will create noise in life in an innumerable amount of ways so that you don't have to deal with that pain. We, we mask this with drugs, whether whether prescription or illicit. It can be pornography. It can be entertainment. Things that are neutral, things that are inherently bad. We can take anything to create Enough sound, enough deadening, so that we don't have to hear that gonging cymbal in our soul or that tension. Just something to get by without feeling like my soul is going to be shredded apart. Um, This uh, this quote comes from Jeremy Pierre, but uh, it's just so convicting about the way we use noise and yet want to raise ourselves up even in the midst of that. One of the ways people keep themselves from the harsh reality that they are being controlled by idols is idol hopping. People are embarrassed by too much domination to one thing. No one wants to admit to being dominated since the point of idol worship is self-determination after all. People can dispose of a particular idol if another idol is standing by with a promise to deliver the same motivating value all while muting and deafening or deadening the human heart. That is true. I mean, it, for me, right? That you, I, you love being entertained, right? So you're on one kick for a little while, and then, okay, I've exhausted everything about that show. I need something new to entertain me. But this can go from one area to another. We can, we can find our value in relationships. And then the mystique and the wonder of the newness of finding out somebody new kind of wears off, and then they're actually a real human, and there's a lot of problems, and we hop to something else. And that might be another relationship, that might be to drugs or to sexual uh, deviancies of any sort, but there's this sense in which we want to hop from thing to thing to thing, and yet turns out we keep having the same problems when we go thing to thing to thing because we're bringing ourselves along with it. And, and you might not be dominated by alcohol in a sense to where you say, oh, I'm dominated by alcohol, I'm an alcoholic. But we do everything we can to avoid that appearance because we ultimately want to feel like we are in control. That is what we want out of life. And dealing, or having to deal with our guilt is really something that is quite out of our control. It's another judge making a declaration on our life and saying, that's not going to cut it. And we aren't the final verdict of our own destiny anymore. We're at the mercy of another judge. A pained conscience is a blessing. Don't suppress it. A pained conscience is a blessing. Don't suppress it. Um, Pain is quite literally how humans learn. I want to say it was Tony Dungy's kid. This is really going a long ways back. But I want to say it was Tony Dungy's kid that had a unique condition where he, or she, I can't even remember, could not feel pain. You say, well, I I wouldn't mind that. That's not so bad (laughs) after all. That's actually incredibly bad. You put your hand on a hot stove, you go, ow! For a reason, you take your hand off that because that's going to kill the cells in your hand. It's a mechanism by which, in a bodily sense, God has designed us to say, stop doing the thing that is ultimately causing your destruction. And someone who doesn't have the ability to say, that's painful, stop doing that, is going to damage themselves physically. And this is very, very, very similar to what we do emotionally, mentally, with guilt. We'll do anything to deaden it, and we'll do anything to mute that pained conscience so that we don't have to come to terms with it, but experiencing the symptoms or the symptom of pain, if you will, is the most painful option. But it is necessary in order to open your eyes to see kind of what lies behind that pain. When we're feeling this tension in our soul, it's indicative of something. You may not know what. It might take some guidance to walk through to figure out what what that thing is. But there's something behind these tensions that you're feeling. Um, And there is incredible freedom in ceasing to avoid the fact that you are indeed guilty. Any time that we attempt to construct a world that is a false world, we do damage to ourselves. When we create a false world in which we convince ourselves that we are not guilty, for those of you that, who have worked in a hospital or a medical setting, um, we're like a dying man who has that one final burst of energy. And that's that's a that's a very, that's a sad sign when you see someone who's, On the way down, they have that last burst because that means things are going really, really bad really fast. That's what our minds are doing. We're like numbing ourselves to this problem, giving our last burst of energy. Our minds bless us by making us feel this disgusting tension between the real world where we're sinful and this world of our imaginary innocence. When our mind throws us into that tension, that's a good thing. It's a good thing. But it's only a good thing if you know what to do with that. If you handle that wrongly, it's enough to destroy a person. So where you go from that moment, where Peter's going to take this guilty crowd, is going to be critical for how we're going to deal with guilt. Guilt can take us one of two ways. It can take us a godly way to repentance or a worldly way to death. Recognizing guilt is only freeing if you receive the righteousness of Jesus' resurrection and repent of that. That is precisely where Peter's going to take people here. You're guilty, and then what does he go on to start talking about? Death, burial, well, death, ascent, burial, resurrection, ascension. He's going to take them to Jesus' person and work to deal with their guilt. And that's the only way that recognizing guilt is actually freeing. Otherwise, you're just stuck in this terrible cycle of seeing the ruin of your sin more clearly and more acutely. And that's actually, that's actually quite devastating. When, when you go through these processes and you learn to see sin more clearly, but then you don't take that next step to see how clearly Christ has dealt with your sin, that's where people really get stuck in a loop. Because then they can only see the guilt that they have now uncovered we stop there and we don't follow this passage through and believe in Jesus and repent, then you're just stuck, right? So that's where I'm going to push this narrative is we have guilt, recognize it, deal with that pain, that's okay, but nowhere to turn to relieve that guilt in an appropriate appropriate way. So Jesus who lived, Jesus died, and then third, Jesus who descended and resurrected and then in the coming verses, we're going to see a little bit about the ascension. But for tonight, we're going to cut it off after the resurrection. Bit. Verses 24 through 32. God raised him up, loosing the When we are confronted with guilt, the only hope is that death could not hold Jesus. And there's some interesting wordplay here. He is raised, right? We have Jesus coming up as one who could not be held by the cords of death or, now we're kind of mixing metaphors, the pangs of death, like uh, a woman in travail is going to give birth to new life. Jesus is give there is birth given to this newness of life in Jesus Psalm 18:4 through 6 Now, there is a ton, and I mean a lot, that could and has been said about Peter's logic of using uh, Psalm 16 here. Um, we're not going to get into it all, and uh, quite frankly, this is one of those times, uh, and this is, uh, this is me, it's not, it's not the Bible, Sometimes I'm just like, "Oh, that's that's the text we chose to use, Peter." Is it? Wow, that was that was a little tough to a little tough to grasp. How in the original context of Psalm 16, this is where we're going. But I've done my best to kind of walk through some of the logic that Peter is using here. Um, I'll also say this: there are. Uh, I'll th- this is going to be on the quiz for next week. Not a- I put it as extra credit, but. Um, this is a new word for probably most of you, and it's something that I'm not real familiar with myself. I'm working on staying through it. Prosological exegesis. Uh, excuse me, prosopological, actually is the correct term. Prosopological exegesis. Um, this is one of the main texts for turning to prosopological exegesis. Um, if I'm confusing you by the term itself, go ahead and tune me out for the next like two minutes. Prosopological exegesis is basically the idea that uh, this is, in this kind of lane of thought, as far as I can understand what I've studied about prosopological exegesis, is that David is not really speaking here, but rather it is the son speaking through David's mouth to the father. And other advocates of this sort of exegesis method are going to look to Hebrews and some of the interactions as we see the Trinity in Hebrews and the psalmic language that's applied there. There's a lot of really good people who say prosopological exegesis is the dumbest thing ever. There's a lot of really good people who say, well, prosopological exegesis is what the early church did. And I don't know how I think about it. I don't think necessarily that this text is using prosopological exegesis. I don't know for sure. I told you at the very first sermon as we went through Acts, there are going to be things I don't quite understand about everything here in the book of Acts, and this is one of them. Um, However, I think... Let's set that... Okay, this is the moment where you come back, by the way. Uh, prospological exegesis, section done. Okay? I think, I think what we can understand from this, though, is, is Peter, thankfully, kind of gives the logic for why he has selected this text in verses 29 and forward. So what I think, what I think Peter is saying here is Jesus is raised. Okay, we've got that. We've seen this experientially. Jesus is raised. He's kind of taking this for granted, I think, at this point in his argument. But now Peter wants to say, not only have we seen that Jesus is raised experientially, with our own eyes and ears, Jesus is also raised in the sense of this was to be expected prophetically. And now Peter wants to prove that the resurrection is something on the prophetic agenda from the Psalms. So David wrote this psalm. About where he will not see the corruption of death. Now, you can go back to that psalm and debate exactly what that means. And that's some of where this debate comes from. But in a general sense, David says, Please don't leave me in the land of the dead, or, or don't leave me in the grave. Don't allow my flesh to see corruption. And I think what Peter goes on to say is here's the paradox. Uh, and There's a lot of things about what Herod did with the tomb of David and all these different things. I could have been around Peter when he's saying this. We don't know. What I think Peter's saying is, here's the paradox, guys. David's right over there, and he's very dead. So either this psalm is wrong, or this wasn't supposed to be about David from the beginning. Mm -hmm. David was speaking prophetically about someone else who would not remain in the land of the dead, and his flesh would not see corruption. And so the idea here is the solution that Peter is proposing is that David understood that in the context of the Davidic covenant, God promises that one of his, son- one of his sons would sit on the throne forever. David recognizes that he's going to the grave. But a greater David must come after him, who, go- who God will not leave in the realm of the dead, but will be raised to new life. And we see this sort of language where David is referred to sitting on the thrones and the prophets where you know, David the king will be back on the throne. And obviously this is just language for the Davidic line as a whole. And so I think what Peter's saying here, here's the paradox, David's dead, very dead. His bones are over here. And yet this psalm is true. And we've seen someone in the Davidic line who was not left in the realm of the dead, who was raised to newness of life, This is what Peter was talking about, and this mystery is now made clear in the light of Jesus when we look at this psalm. That is my understanding of how Peter is arguing for the resurrection here. So, theologically, then, we see that the Apostles, we kind of see this Apostles' Creed type of way of structuring in Peter's sermon, which is a little anachronistic, but kind of follows the same pattern. Jesus is incarnated, Jesus is crucified. And Jesus is buried. These are things that we'd be familiar with. But when Jesus descends to the realm of the dead, or you might call this hell, um, you can think about this if you want to make a loop. I'll try to do it backwards here. Jesus is incarnate, he descends from heaven, he is crucified, he dies, and then he descends to the realm of the dead. the the descent is the beginning of his ascension okay the descent is the beginning of his ascension and let me unpack that a little bit he descends and proclaims victory in the underworld he goes to the underworlds and proclaims victory to the spirits who are in captivity he resurrects and proclaims victory in the land of the living for 40 days and he ascends on high and proclaims victory over the angelic realm and so the bottom point of that apex when Jesus' ascension, if we can use that term very loosely, is His descent, his resurrection and his ascension. all is one theological movement where Jesus has won. He went to the cross. Jesus wins. Guilt is dealt with. And so what I think we're seeing here is kind of this idea that we're taking some the, the soul from Hades, not seeing corruption, resurrection which we're going to get to, and then Ascension is coming in the next week. And so I see this as one theologic movement for Peter, descent to resurrection to Ascension. A greater David was needed. David didn't always worship God correctly. David was shaken. David died. David didn't always walk rightly. If you know anything about the stories of David's life, great man used by God powerfully, Uh, he was not always the best man, and yet he's the ideal man presented for the kings in the Old Testament. Something greater is going to have to come if worship and state and all these things are going to be combined in one man. There has to be a greater David to come. And, And certainly, if we look at this psalm, the Lord wasn't always before David. David was Not not always not shaken. His heart wasn't always glad either. David was in the depths of despair, on the regular, (laughs) in some ways. And and Jesus has this gladness of heart where he worships God in a perfected. uh, He is in a perfect relationship with God. Um, David was guilty. Peter's audience, you and I, are guilty. We don't always worship God correctly. We're shaken in our faith. We need someone to pull us out of this pit that we're in. On our own, we are going to go to these realms of the dead. Our flesh is going to see corruption. We need someone to come and pull us out of that pit. In the same way that as great as David was, he needed someone after him to come and pull him out of that pit. And so his, Peter's audience here will be crushed by the weight of this guilt. They're going to be cut to the heart in other words. But Peter's going to tell them to believe and to turn to Jesus. And so if you are being crushed under the weight of that guilt the same gospel application is there for both believers and unbelievers. To the unbeliever we would say turn to the resurrected Christ. And The same counsel must go for the believer also. Turn to the resurrected Christ. Cast your eyes on Jesus. Recognize what he has done in his death, burial, descent, and as we're going to work through resurrection and ascent. Jesus has dealt with this guilt for you. So whether it's binging or whether it's purging or cutting or medication or working out or getting away from people or drowning yourself in socialization or noise or food or sex or whatever this thing is for you or whether you've hopped between three of the eight that I just mentioned, these things can never address the root issue like the person and work of Jesus can And all of these experiential truths that we want to hold about our relief of our guilt and all the derivative items that come from that, they have to be grounded in the objective reality that Jesus was fully God, fully man, and a lot of boring truths that you've heard time and time and time again are incredibly applicable to our sin struggles. The experiential aspect of this is woven right throughout, and I'll just say this from a a personal level, um, Think about the use of God's sovereignty in my sin. There have been plenty of instances where I've done something stupid or been around people who have done sinful, motivated things, and yet it works out in ways that are unbelievably beneficial to me and to other people who are around me. And that's not to say there aren't consequences for sin. There certainly are. But here's the grace of God amidst our guilt and his sovereignty all mixed in to God orchestrating everything for the good of those who are called and, uh, and going to be conformed to the image of Christ is that when you look back over the course of your life, certainly there are, are regrettable things that we've all done. And yet, how many of those regrettable things do you look back with with some sort of redeeming quality that you didn't understand the picture at the time and you still might not understand the picture, but God is working even your <laughs> sin, into an amazing life where we are able to experience grace and forgiveness and mercy. This is only loosely connected through the fact that it's Peter, but one of the most interesting verses, a lot of interesting verses about angels in the New Testament, but for Peter, one of the interesting verses is that the angels desire to look in upon what we have. What an odd comment. And warp your mind even a little bit further, Paul says there are elect and implying non-elect angels, in the same that there's elect and non-elect humans. There's a lot to go into there. But what's weird to me is that the angels desire to look into the grace that we've received. There are plenty of angels who have sinned, but God has a special relationship with humanity where there is going to be grace and forgiveness for his people because of what Jesus did as the shepherd for those people. And so This is not a license to sin more, but what it is to say is that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound in the life of believers. And God is truly working all of these things to good. And so as Peter puts them through the ringer here of guilt, we also must see that grace is the flip side. And Paul draws this out so beautifully. Behold the kindness and the severity of God. These are two truths that will forever be held in tension, is that God is a gracious God to us. And yet our sin is taken so seriously that Jesus had to go through this on the cross. So, instead of loving other things more than God, because our older brother Jesus went before us in perfection, overcoming death, we can kind of experience these things that are seen in the psalm. We are able now to desire God above all things, We're able to have rightly ordered affections. How often do we take subordinate affections and make them ultimate affections? Things that are good. Family. Working out. I mean, you can name anything. Uh, Serving in the church. Teaching. These are subordinate to the ultimate end, which is to know and to love God. Now we are able to, by Jesus' being crucified and resurrected, we are able to have our affections ordered properly to where we love God. And this, I saw the Lord always before me, having God in front of us, then results in stability. We're not going to be shaken. It results in a gladness in God's presence. If you look at the world, there's a whole lot of numbing and medicating that goes on because if they actually came to terms with their guilt, It would crush them, and some people have the clarity of mind, and it does crush them. Christians have the unique opportunity to be logically consistent and glad. We have a unique position to where we don't have to make an imaginary world up in order to be glad. Jesus has given us the opportunity to have gladness in God's presence and hope for this life and beyond. You are not going to be left in Sheol and your fleshly in corruption because our older brother Jesus death couldn't, Sheol the cords, the pangs, whatever you want to say death could not hold Jesus and has prepared that way for us as well. So if you are willing to identify with this Jesus that Peter presents and if you're willing to associate with Jesus, if you're willing to repent of these sins, then you can be set free. You can be set free. So for the non-Christian, we're going to encourage them to recognize their guilt and receive Jesus' forgiveness. And to the Christian, you have already received forgiveness in Jesus, but it's quite another matter to live in the freedom of that truth. That's a much more challenging task. And when we sin and follow our idols again, we must refocus our eyes back on the person and work of Jesus because we stop setting the Lord before us in that moment when we do not cast our eyes on Jesus. Uh, Martin Luther, in his 95 Theses, Martin Luther was a man who understood guilt and had a clarity to that the first of his 95 theses when our lord and master jesus christ said repent matthew 4:17 he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance three in the 95 theses yet it does not mean solely inner repentance such inner repentance is worthless unless it produces various outward mortification of the flesh first it's a hard attitude But the genuineness of that inward repentance is reflected outwardly as well. So whether this is your first time truly repenting, or you've been a Christian for 50 years who's had to confess sin and then the same sin time and time and time again, or you've had numerous sins which all trace back to the same root issue, and you've had to confess that time and time and time again, this one thing is sure is that Jesus continues to be in the business of declaring those who crucified him, Not guilty. Remember, Jesus is still acting. That's where this book started, and Jesus is through the keys of the kingdom, in Peter and the church. He's going to say, "Not guilty." These people are not guilty, and Peter's proclaiming this message of repentance. Luke eighteen nine through fourteen. He also told this parable to some who trusted in himself. adulterers for, for even like this tax, tax collectors, I fast twice a week. I give tithes to all that I get. For the tax collector, sinner for us, who not even looked up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Obviously, that text is one that is, I think, leaning more towards an initial justification. But I see no harm in relishing and digging into the well of the publicans' words there far into our Christian life. And we say, just as it was at the beginning, God, I am still not worthy of your grace or your forgiveness. I never will be, and I am just as guilty as I could be And you have chosen to forgive me. So, know the person and work of Jesus matter. Jesus was the greater son of David and Messiah who came in human flesh. He lived a perfect life, was crucified on our behalf, was buried, descended to hell, as in the realm of the dead, was raised to new life, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Knowing that, do this. Recognize that you're as guilty and in need of a Savior as those who actually, in the hands-on sense, crucified him. Don't suppress the pain alarms that scream of a guilty conscience. Understand that apart from Jesus, you are guilty, but that there is an overabounding grace if you will believe in Jesus and repent. So Peter goes on the offense here in describing the person and work of Jesus. Peter describes Jesus as the fully incarnated man, attested to by God's signs and wonders. Peter describes Jesus as one crucified and killed by God's sovereign plan and man's evil will. Peter describes Jesus as the greater David who overcame the power of death in the realm of the dead in a way that no one else could. This Jesus stands ready to forgive the guilt of all who crucified him if they will believe and repent toward his person and work on their behalf. Father, I want to thank you that you have chosen to hide these things from the people who are wise and influential according to this age. And so I pray that you would help us to see ourselves correctly, that our self-knowledge would lead to knowledge of you in a true sense. I pray that as we have so many, so many who are racked with various emotions that we could be wise and discerning the innocent portion of our suffering and the part where we've sinned against you and Father I just pray that as we work through these things that you would give us grace to have it push us to you and not as a worldly sorrow that pushes us to death but in this paradoxical sense we could rejoice in the forgiveness status post of being guilty so that Um, We are forgiven, but not in the sense that we delight in sin, Lord, and just help us to walk through the complexities of what this means in a very gray and difficult life where, like Peter, we take our eyes off of you so frequently, and yet you extend that gracious hand time and time again, Lord. So as we go from here, Lord, and as we literally enter into a more noisy moment in life, I pray that you would help us to deal well with silence. Silence actually. Silence for our soul so that we can appropriately introspect upon where we are wrong and where you are willing to bind us up as broken reeds. So, Father, thank you for purposing to have such love towards your people. And to the Son, thank you so much for being willing and desiring yourself to come and to save that people in spirit. Thank you for applying it to the people in Peter's day, to preserving this word and the apostles' testimony so that your witness would be applied and your word would do its amazing work in our hearts to this day. In Jesus' name, amen. As, um, as I was thinking about this text and... Song lyrics pop to mind for these sort of things. The lyric for that came to mind was, uh, I, can't, I, can't, I don't care about the song title really. Um, Death could not hold him from. What is the name of the song? Uh, what a beautiful, name. what a beautiful name it is. Um, Josh and I talked about it. There's uh, one verse that we're, it's, you know, uh, we're we're dropping out one verse that we <laughs> would prefer not to sing. But um, I think that the the truth and the celebratory tone of this song just captured so well um, the, the emphasis of where this text is building to, and so I wanted to have a, a time where we sing that tonight. So, uh, particularly for those folks that are back there, let's crowd in, let's stand, and then um, we're going to sing what a beautiful name it is. Can you crowd in so that they can... Pour in, pour in, pour in. So Boring. as as Sam said, we're not doing verse two. If you look at if you look at the lyrics and it's labeled by verses, we're not doing verse two. We're just going to repeat verse one. And each chorus, every time we sing it, it, the only thing that changes is it goes from what a beautiful name to what a wonderful name and ending on what a powerful name. So just if if you're worried about which course you're on course one or three or it just changes from beautiful wonderful powerful but you'll figure it out <laughs> Yeah.